This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Manny Cotto, executive producer of Star Trek Enterprise. You're listening to Warp 5 on Trek FM. How we doing, Trip? Ready when you are. Prepare for war. Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5. I am your boy band host, Brandon Shamitella. Joining me today is one of the Backstreet Boys himself, Patrick Devlin. How you doing, buddy? Not as good as I was 10 minutes ago. Why? Oh, <laughs> the Backstreet Boy himself. I can't dance to save my... You just got me fired from every job I have. So... Thank you. Um, no, I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing just fine, and uh, we have got a wonderful interview today, but you know what? It wouldn't be complete if we didn't have fellow co-host, Backstreet Girl, Brandy Jacola. Backstreet Girl, mm-mm, Spice Girl. If we're... Female, yeah, or female in sync at least. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know these bands. I just listen to Justin Bieber. That's uh, well, that's um, <laughs> unfortunate. Anyway... <laughs> Well, he's a countryman, so I tweet. I tweeted that once. And, I'm like, and I'm very glad he's your countryman. <laughs> you know, I, I, I tweeted that once. I'm like, just as random, just to be funny. I'm like, you sing one back. You sing one Justin Bieber song at work, and all of a sudden, everybody's accusing you of having Bieber fever, and everybody's like, I hate him. It's like, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just kidding. I'm just making a joke. Yeah. Anyways, but uh, no, we're not here to talk about boy bands. Although this reference will become clear. Later on in the episode, because we've got ourselves a wonderful guest today, uh, we're having an interview with Dave Rossi, and uh, he was the associate producer on Enterprise for its run. He worked on Voyager for its whole run, and he worked on a couple years of Star Trek: The Next Generation, and he even helped to produce the remastered original series DVDs and Blu-rays that came out. And we have already conducted the interview, but we talk all about this plus Superman plus the alternative factor. <laughs> Of it's great. It's a great room. episode. And we're in the room mm-hmm. where you eat stuff. Oh, and we're in the room where you... I'm so bad at this, Patrick. Right. I'm so sorry. Yes, we're in yes. the room where we eat stuff. Yes, and we have Backstreet Boys and other boy bands in the corner. Yes. And that will become clear as we talk. I'm so and bad. The, yes, and this very confusing intro will all become clear. <sighs> you know, I can do funny where can people find yous, but I'm not good at the rest of the stuff, I guess. I'm sorry. So... <laughs> 
Patrick, where can people find you when you're not correcting me about my bad intro? (laughs) Did we do this already? (laughs) They can still find me on Twitter. (laughs) Excellent. Probably trying to correct you. Probably trying to correct me. Well, I think it's uh, time that we should just probably move right into the interview. Should we beam him in? Let's beam him in. Yeah, let's beam him in. Let's do it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dave. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about uh, your work on Star Trek Enterprise, and I'm sure we're going to touch base and we'll talk a little bit of Superman as well. I look forward to talking. Excellent. Right on. Patrick, do you want to take it away with the first question? Sure. What was your history with Star Trek prior to working on the show? Uh, prior to working on the show, uh, I had really no history uh, aside from being a, an obsessively rabid fan. Um, I discovered the show when it was uh, just first going into syndications, probably around 1972, and I was uh, seven or eight years old at the time, and I was a diehard, uh, you know, Lost in Space fan at the time, and uh and when I found Star Trek, it changed everything, um, everything. I became just obsessed with it. I, I, and again, this is, you know, certainly way before the Internet or the ability to connect with other fans. And so it was really a, a scramble to try and figure out how to find more information. And so, you, you know, you could, you could join up to some fanzines or you could, you know, pick up Starlog and, and that was the, the kind of the extent for a, a kid from Buffalo, New York, um, to get involved. And then, then the licensing started as, as the show started getting popular, uh, or, or I should say, unlicensed things started. But, but there was a, a material boom for the show, and so that's when models started coming out, and toys, and and um, most importantly for me, books. The Franz Joseph Technical Manual was. Uh, just a bible for me for the show i read it i don't i couldn't tell you how many times and and, you know i would teach star trek at my house to the kids in the neighborhood and i mean i was just ravenous about it and uh and then through a very bizarre quirky set of circumstances i had no i had no designs on going to hollywood i had no uh, background in filmmaking or anything like that um it was pure luck and happenstance and uh, a little dose of passion, I would say, that, that got me there. Mm-hmm. So you say that you loved Star Trek and that changed everything for you, but you watched Lost in Space. Are you telling me that the carrots in Lost in Space didn't change everything for you? <laughs> you know, I was, a, I was a huge fan of the robot. And, um, and that was really my, my hook for Lost in Space. I mean, Certainly, even as a even as a five, six, seven year old kid watching it, the the talking carrot and the you know the the goofy guy who ran the the interstellar department store, you know, who did that popping sound with his cheek. I mean, you know, all those it, you, it was it was really high camp and silly. It was you know uh, it was the Batman TV show, but um, but but seeing uh, the very first episode of Star Trek I saw was this side of paradise and, and I tuned in just as the landing party was beaming down um, to the planet. And, you know, first that was 
something in itself. That level of visual effect was something I'd never seen before. So uh, I was immediately engaged. But but um, watching that episode, the character of Captain Kirk just, I don't know, leapt off the screen. And, and the, the whole thing with his ships slowly mutinying and, and, and leaving for the planet and him being left alone and and just his force of will to overcome these wacky plants. I mean, I, it just really, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how to say it captivated me any stronger than, than that. It just really, really um, took control of my life for a long time. Now, I, I do want to ask about the uh, remastering of the TOS episodes, but while we're before we go on, I do want to touch on one, one little tangent here before we go on. Have you seen the trailer for the new Lost in Space? I just saw it the, uh, over the weekend. Yes, I did. It looks pretty outstanding. I'm pretty excited to check this out. It's coming out right away here. It yeah, looks this, pretty good. Is and, it this and, week? Yeah, I think uh, the 13th. Yeah, that's Friday. Yeah. That's this week. Ooh, good grief. Yeah, as of recording, it's coming out the Friday of the recording here. Uh, this will be dropping the week after it starts airing. But yeah, we're uh, we're. I'm excited. I'm going to cool to check it out so yeah i'm excited to i'm excited to see it too and they're taking an interesting uh, path with the robot that he's not part of the crew it's somebody it's something they find right yeah that'll be interesting yeah, exactly. now i i know that we're on the uh the enterprise podcast here but i do have to ask you about working on the remastering of the tos episodes how did you get involved with that and uh you know what? What exactly were you doing to help uh, the Akudas to prepare this event, and like who all were we working with to uh, to create these episodes? Well, um, CBS uh, and Paramount, I believe at the time were. I, I don't remember if they had just split. I think maybe they had just split, and CBS syndication was looking to reintroduce Star Trek to syndicated stations around the country, around the world. And yeah. I had a meeting with uh, a gentleman I'd worked with before in their TV syndication department. His name was David LaFontaine, and he was their uh, senior vice president of syndicated television. And so he took me to lunch, and he said, listen, we, we have this idea that we want to reintroduce Star Trek, but nobody wants to buy it. There are no advertisers who will jump on board because the show is 40 years old, and it's you know, been running in syndication for since the early seventies. So their question to us is why would we pay money for this old rag? And he said, so we're trying to figure out ways we can enhance that experience. So advertisers will jump on board. And he threw out, there were a couple of different things that he threw out. And honestly, I don't remember all of them, but, but the one he seemed most excited about was visual effects. So he said to me, we're thinking about hiring some company somewhere to redo the visual effects of the original series. And I remember saying, you know, because George Lucas had just gone through the spank machine after doing what he did with his movies and, you know, people saying that he destroyed their childhood and, you know, that whole thing. And so I said to him, this is a horrible idea. It, you know, you're going to get somebody who's going to want to, uh, just change everything for the sake of change. And, and I know I said, this is a horrible idea. You're, you're just going to bite off uh, a lot more than you can chew with this, uh, with fandom. They're going to turn on you. 
And I said, as I would, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to see the enterprise redesigned and I, I you know, all of that stuff. Uh, so I said, I think this is a huge mistake. I would go back to the drawing board. And so he said, well, he said, why don't you think about it and take a couple of weeks, see if you can come up with something else. And then let's meet again for lunch and, and talk it through. And so we did. So a couple of weeks later, I came back and I said, well, I, you know, I don't know what else you could do besides what you're saying, but I still think what you're saying is a colossal mistake. And he said, well, what if I could find someone who would do it, but respect the material? What if I could find someone who would not change the design of the enterprise, but just update it and, and you know, do those kinds of things? And I said, well, if you could find somebody like that, go ahead, but good luck. And he said, well, how would you like to do it? And I, uh, in about a half second said, okay. <laughs> um, you know, this was, everything kind of went out the window. And, and I, I was like, wait a minute, I, you're saying I would have the ability to kind of set the template for what this would be. There would be, there's no visual effects people telling me that the enterprise should be doing barrel rolls and, and we're going to change phasers and change, you know, I, and he said, no, 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 this, this would be your thing. And, and you can produce it the way you see fit and we'll give you a budget and we'll, you know, well, the only snag to it was I was at the time I had just enterprise had just ended and I was about to take a new job with Paramount and they in, in taking this new job, they had threatened that I would be doing a lot of traveling. Um, and so I said to David, well, I would love to take this job. I said, but I'll have to bring somebody else in um, to help because I, I'm supposed to be, I'm starting this job soon and I'm, I'm, there's a threat that I'll be traveling a lot. So I wouldn't want to leave you in the lurch. And he said, you can bring in whoever you want, but you know, budget stays the same. You're going to get paid the same. And I said, okay, that's fine. And, um, and so I went to Mike and Denise and I, uh, because while I was out of work between Enterprise and, and Paramount, they were kind enough to employ me for a few months while they were doing the CBS auction. So I was helping them catalog things uh, and identify things from the years and years and years of, of Star Trek props and wardrobe and all, all of this stuff that had accumulated in these various warehouses around Southern California. And so uh, so I came to, to Mike and Denise. I said, hey, what do you guys think if they redid the visual effects for the original series and put it back in syndication. And Mike and Denise said, that's a horrible idea. And I said, but what if we were in charge of it? <laughs> and, and, and Mike said, what? And I said, what if we were in charge of it? And, um, and so of course they came around as well. I mean, it was a chance for us to, to honor, you know, uh, something that was very sacred to us. And, and, uh, and look, you know, Mike Okuda, is a student of not only filmmaking, but certainly of Star Trek and how it was done. I, I don't have that, uh, that level of expertise. I, I was never, you know, I was never aiming my career at trying to get into the film business. So I'm not a filmmaker per se. And uh, I don't study, you know, the techniques and the production and, and the things the way that, that Mike certainly did. I, I'm more interested in, I love the fictional worlds that, that these, 
franchises create, and that's really my passion for it. So, um, so getting Mike involved and getting Denise involved was kind of a no-brainer. And, uh, and so with very, very little budget and very little time before they wanted to air the first episode, um, we approached Doug Drexler. Uh, and Doug Drexler was not only a visual effects person associated with Star Trek for many years, but he also then went on and ran the visual effects department for Battlestar Galactica, the Ron Moore reboot. And so we uh, negotiated a deal with him and he sent us a test and we were blown away. I mean, we just were, I mean, over the moon. But then somebody at CBS uh, somewhere in there, I don't know if it was their legal department or somewhere, somebody found out that the project was happening and they have this little um, visual effects house, well, not so little anymore, but at the time called CBS Digital. And they said, you have to bid it with these guys. You have to give these guys a chance to do it. And, you know, we'd never heard of them. So we were aghast. We were just like, no, 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 you don't understand. We've got the guy. And they were very insistent. So, so as an underhanded, sneaky um, <laughs> ploy, what we did was we went in and bid it to CBS Digital, but we made the schedule and the budget sound so unpalatable that no visual effects house in their right mind would take this job. <laughs> so we went in, and it was a, a, a guy named Craig Weiss, who ran the department for CBS Digital, and then their visual effects supervisor, uh, Neil Ray, who in the long run turned out to be our guardian angel. So it, it, it really couldn't have been better. But it was those two guys in a room and then their boss at CBS. And he was this guy who uh, he stood in the doorway and never said a word. He just stood there kind of silently while we were all talking this out. And they said, so what's the, what's the deal? And we said, well, um, you have two weeks to deliver the first two episodes and you are going to have to build the enterprise from scratch because there's no existing model that we have. I mean, we tried to, <laughs> we tried to make this sound as crazy as possible. And we were, I, we were sure walking in there, they're never going to take this. And so we, we spit this out and Craig turns to this, guy in the doorway and the guy in the doorway just silently nods his head yes and craig goes we'll do it <laughs> we were like oh, what <laughs> we were like what do you mean you'll do it well the the rubber hit the road when you see the contract was very well it was a bit ambiguous what it said was that they would, re, you know, we were going to replace all of the exterior shots. We were going to redo the planet exteriors as far as from space, all space shots, basically, and episode specific shots. And then if there were time, we would work on some of the map paintings as well, if we could do that. Well, the way CBS Digital interpreted that was there were something like 17 shots of the enterprise across the entire series of the show, aside from things that they needed to do that were very episode specific. 
So that's how they interpreted what they were going to do. They thought, okay, we'll take this shot because we're just going to be reproducing 17 shots of the Enterprise. And then, you know, we'll make a doomsday device. And, you know, I mean, it was, you know, they looked at it that way. Well, what Mike and Denise and I had planned was something, you know, we, we envisioned 300 new shots of the Enterprise. I'm taking from every kind of angle you can imagine. I mean, this was the whole point of this was to, to elevate the show for syndication. It's that, that's what we assumed it meant. So they took the job. And then the way it would work is every week, uh, I forget how we did it. We, we divvied up the show. Mike, like for instance, Mike did even shows and I did odd shows or something like that. And we would put together these Excel sheets where we would each watch a show and put the time code down for every place there was a visual effect that needed changing. And then we would get together. And as we went through that list and watched the episode, we would start envisioning what those shots were. Well, this the this would be a shot of the Enterprise looking this way. This would be this way, uh, and part of the problem of of the schedule was that we had no way to change the length of, of any shots. So, for instance, if there was a one point four second shot, you know, of the Enterprise, that's what we had to fill it with. So, um, there was only I think two times maybe where we changed the length of a shot. But um, but that's what we had to work with. So it was very constraining. And um, and fortunately, um, we when we would go to Neil Ray and say, he'd say, you know, this isn't a shot on the list. And we'd say, I know, but look at this shot. I mean, you know, wouldn't you want to see the Enterprise this way? I mean, what, you know, and then it started, that started, and he would do it because he was excited. And then he, that started leaking into, you know what would be really cool is if the Gorn blinked could we just make his eyes blink a couple of times? And he'd go, yeah, I don't know. All right, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Uh, hey, you know, in this episode, Scotty's firing a phaser at this bulkhead, but no beam is coming out of the gun. Can we add a beam to, you know? <laughs> and so it was this slow kind of, um, you know, we got some great shots out of, um, you know, uh, Norman the android lifting his stomach to, to show his interior. I mean, they got rid of the old, radio transistors and and put some new kind of you know visual effect mechanization in there that looked really cool so so it you know we we slowly started doing but but eventually it became an issue of money and time and so we all ended up getting hauled into a, a very contentious meeting at cbs and and the head of uh uh, CBS TV City was in there, and it was uh, me and David LaFontaine on one side of the table, and CBS Digital on the other. And and you know it, it was the CBS Digital guys, and and not wrongfully so. They they just had a different interpretation of what the contract was. But they said, listen, they're going to bankrupt us if they keep. You know, they, they come to us with 150 different shots for every episode. <laughs> you know, we 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 can't possibly continue to do this, and. So this head of the TV city turned to me and said, well, what do you have to say for yourself? I mean, the contract says this. And I said, listen, the, the contract is ambiguous as to what we want. The point of this is to get advertisers to buy this show. And they're not going to buy the show because you replaced 17 shots. 
that's still the same show. So what we've done is made it dynamic enough that you can tout every episode as a different episode and the fans are going to love it. I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're slavishly faithful to, to what the original intent was and maybe too much so when it comes down to it. I mean, we probably could have, you know, done some things that like, you know, I know Neil um, at CBS digital, as we got closer to the end of the series, he was, he was thinking, what if we put, took some tiny elements of the enterprise from Star Trek, the motion picture and work them into this enterprise. We were like, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. But, but, but there were suggestions that came out that maybe we, we should have entertained had we had the time and whatever, but, but, uh, but anyway, so it, it all worked out. The guy finally said, okay, you, you can add two new shots per episode at this point, because you've got enough to reuse and then, um, and just finish the job and get out of my sight. And we were like, okay, well, <laughs> that's a deal. And so that's yeah, and so that's how it did, and and we and we all had and we had like you know just quickly Mike. Uh, Mike does a lot of work with NASA um, uh, design work and and things, and so you know uh, a lot of the stuff that he really loved was um, working with a guy named Max Gable, who was their matte painting artist, and and so he and Mike would work on redoing the matte paintings and working on the exteriors of the planets. Um, and, and some of the things like that, like I remember working on the Botany Bay, Mike had them really get close on like how the hatches worked, you know, things you, you wouldn't really ever see, but, but he, you know, relished the idea of, of using today's technology to kind of expand that stuff. And so that was kind of his forte. And my forte was, um, was all the battles. So I, you know, I, I remember Captain Kirk would lay out a plan in an episode and all you'd see is the Enterprise moving left to right and the music going, dun, 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 you know, <laughs> it, was, it was nothing like what was explained on the TV. <laughs> so, so we, uh, uh, so I, I got to kind of get my hands dirty with a lot of that stuff. So that was a lot of fun. Excellent. Right on. Yeah. It's an outstanding set. And, uh, I just, I couldn't resist not asking you about it because, uh, you know, it's it's pretty cool what they did, and it, you guys definitely kept it faithful to what it was, and you didn't have like, uh, you know, Gorn six Gorn walking in front of the camera, you know. So I'm I'm okay. I think it's I think it's good. Well, so, thank good you, job. thank you very much. I hope I didn't talk too long about it. No, not at all, not at all. In fact, we're actually coming up. We're coming up on the uh, on the uh, anniversary of completing it in a week. I think a week or two. It'll be About ten years now. I think it'll be ten years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, as a person who basically has been watching Star Trek longer than she knew uh, what Star Trek was, I mean, my parents watched it, so we all watched it. I love what was done with the remaster. It's absolutely glorious, and I love Oh, thank you. Everything. It's just I watched it on Netflix just to see what was what was what really, and I just thought it almost brought tears. No, it did bring tears to my eyes. Let's be honest. I'm, so I'm a crier. <laughs> I'm a crier. You and my wife. Anyway. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm not ashamed of that. So, but uh, I just really appreciate the work that you well, did. Well, thank you. It was, uh, it was really a passion project. It really was. There was, there was no, no money and no time. And, you know, it was that classic kind of thing, but we loved every minute of it. 
Of course, those are the best kind of projects. So right. now you are listed as a production associate for seasons five through seven of The Next Generation. How is that different from what you did on Enterprise? Well, on the show, um, the producer's assistants couldn't get screen credits as assistants. I don't know what the what the rule was, but the uh, the, the production was kind enough to come up with um, the title production associate, and that kind of grouped in all of us who otherwise wouldn't have been able to get credits. So while I was, I started on the fifth season of Next Gen as a PA, and then in the sixth and seventh seasons, I was Mary Howard's assistant. And so I uh, eventually got a credit for that. I think the last season of Next Gen might have even been just the last episode. But then with Voyager, we started getting credits as production associates. So it was very, they didn't have to do that. It was just something they did to, to uh, kind of throw us a bone for all the work we did. So it was very nice. Well, good. Cause you should get credit for all the work you did. <laughs> <laughs> At what point of the production uh, process were you hired on, on enterprise? Uh, I moved to enterprise, uh, right at the conclusion of Voyager. I was, uh, uh, so when Next Generation entered its seventh season, Deep Space Nine was starting its first season, and half of the crew was split. And half of the people went to DS9, and half of us stayed on, um, on finishing up Next Generation. And then Voyager started a season after that, and we all moved right to that. So uh, my track was next-gen Voyager Enterprise, and although I worked on Deep Space Nine, I wasn't, I wasn't a member of the staff as, as, uh, as a lot of people were until I became Rick Berman's assistant, and then, of course, you know, you get your hands in everything. What was the general mood like during the first season of Enterprise, like during the production of it? We've heard tell that uh, Berman and Braga didn't really want to start production on a new show so soon after Voyager was all finished up. And, you know, did that affect the atmosphere of the production or did they go ahead to all guns a blazing? Well, I, you know, this is something that actually started in Voyager. Um, when Deep Space Nine launched and the studio came and said, now we want you to do another one. Uh, that was the first time Rick asked them to kind of pump the brakes a little bit and let Deep Space Nine find its footing first. And the studio was very, you know, the show was so hot at the time. Next Gen was coming off, you know, these, you know, uh, uh, Emmy recognition for a syndicated show and these huge ratings. And, and then Deep Space Nine started. And, and so they just wanted to keep going. So it, it becomes the, this, this thing where... Um, the studio is going to do it anyway. So it becomes a question of, do you want to be a part of it or not? And the same thing happened with enterprise after Voyager, Rick was like, guys, we've got to take a break. Let, let the field become fallow for a little bit and let people build up their desire to want to watch a Star Trek series again. And then let's jump in and do it. But the studio, uh, you know, they were just launching UPN, I guess. And, and so they wanted some kind of signature show to be part of that package. And, and that's what enterprise was going to become. And, and, uh, and so they pushed forward and, and at some point, you know, Rick had to just, he just went along with it because he, you know, he'd had the experience to do it. And so he, he 
we we had this well-oiled machine. It didn't. It seemed crazy for us to all, you know, quit out of spite or something. So, um, so he took the job and developed Enterprise with Brandon, and and that was an interesting, you know, the idea of going back and doing something kind of re-energized everybody. I think everybody was really excited, um, and it was a fun development process. And and you know, for um, to be in Rick's office at that time and be a fan of the original series the way I was, I was invited into a lot of development meetings with he and Brandon to talk about, you know, where kind of what things they talked about on Star Trek, the original series and where the government was and where, you know, just where these things were so they could work backwards to try and figure out how to piece together enterprise. Mm -hmm. I think there was always, I, I think there was always concern. I mean, because, you know, people were the, the ratings were were continued to dip on every successive show. Um, not in any horrific way, the shows would have immediately been canceled, but they continued to kind of slide. And so, there was there was you know, um, we all kind of felt like, boy, it would have been nice for the studio to listen to Rick and take a break, but that just wasn't how it played out. So, um, so you know, you put your best foot forward and you and you go for it true i'm not sure that it was a lack of interest because where i live they shuffled around the time of that show all the time uh the local affiliate did so they would be preempted because of a sport event they might show it at three o'clock on a saturday morning and not tell anybody and that this was back before i had a dvr i didn't even know what a dvr was then and so that was my experience is that I missed almost all of season three because I could never find it on. And yeah, you can set a VCR to record it, but it's only going to record on that channel at that time. And most of the time it was a sporting event. So it was very, that's right. It was you're right. for me. <laughs> it was frustrating so, because there, I remember that there were a lot of, uh, a lot of complaints about uh, the fact that, that uh, wrestling was preempting enterprise. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it was so, yeah. very hard. <sighs> well, they didn't, anyway. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another story real quickly. You know, the, the network didn't understand the show really or, or really um, embrace it in that way. You know, they came to us at one point and said, um, hey, you know that place where they eat on the ship? And uh, we were like, <laughs> yeah, they have the mess hall. And they said, what if every week there was a different boy band playing music in there for the crew? Oh, Lord. Oh, no. And, you know, no. we had to say, you, you understand the premise of the show, right? We're, we're leaving Earth to explore the galaxy. We're not stopping and picking up boy bands. And, and you know, their whole thing was, well, you have to understand, you know, uh, using um, musical bands and, and, uh, and creating that synergy is really big now. And it's like, well, that's great, but that, <laughs> we're not going to stop off at, uh, you know, Deneb four to pick up the Backstreet Boys. I mean, it's just. <laughs> I can promise you that that would have been the end of my love of Enterprise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is the best I, laugh I've had in two. This fan greatly thanks you. I have a podcast to do because that never happened. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I could just picture it now. I mean, you know, we we could have we could have had Justin Bieber on if it was made now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but. So, so there's boy bands and Trillium oh. D and the uh, Zindi all in, oh, in, in the middle Ooh. of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they play in that place where they ate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, 
that little I'm area. Sorry. This is hilarious to me. Well, and and it was specific to boy bands, which is even worse. Yeah. It wasn't like the canteen scene oh. in Star Wars. Oh, it was going to be boy oh, bands boy. every week. Yeah. Well, they had the they had the girls covered with the uh, with the isolation or not the isolation word with the. Uh, the, the petroleum jelly. Yeah, right, the guru. They came up from the, uh, right, the guru. The decontamination chamber? Is that what you're yes, talking thank about? thank you. Yes, that yeah, was. the blue guru. I knew what he meant when he said jelly room because it's always some sad. <sighs> I'm sorry, I'm the, I'm the producer of the podcast and I don't I don't know what the podcast <laughs> is about. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, that room where they did that yeah. thing with the jelly. Yeah, the decon, right. yeah, I know. <laughs> that's right, the, the, the jelly room. And, and, you know, for us, it was, uh, th- that was the first time working on Enterprise was the first time. Uh, well, a couple things had, had kind of um, played out that changed things a little bit. First of all, the, re- the the ruling regime at the studio changed in the TV division. And so, um, so that changed a lot of things when Enterprise came out as well, because while Next Generation was going and up through Voyager – we were doing so well that it was hands-off. The studio and, and, uh, and, and everybody didn't, didn't interfere with anything. I mean, if, if there was some egregious problem they had or there was some you know, director they wanted to use or guest star they wanted to use, certainly they would contact us. But, but typically, we were free to run the show the way we wanted because it was so successful. But with Enterprise, that changed. So um, then there were a lot of notes from the studio, from the network, and that was a little tough to swallow. And maybe it was just that we were, uh, you know, we were just used to, to running the show we, the, the way we felt best. But, but this was a whole other level of involvement from these other entities, and that, that was tough as well. That has to be frustrating. Okay, I may know the answer to this question based on things you've said already, but of all the Star Trek you have worked on, and there seems to be quite a bit, what was your favorite project and why? Uh, well, you know, my my knee-jerk reaction was to just say remastered. That's um, what I thought you would say. <laughs> because I really, say, I mean... Uh, but I have to say, working on Next Generation as well was, um, it was pretty magical. Um, I had no intent of getting into this business, let alone working on a Star Trek show. And to, you know, one day walk through a couple of doors and there's the bridge or there's the engine room. I mean, um, and then to get to know these people, um, you know, who I'd only been watching on television. I mean, it's, uh, I made a lot of longstanding friendships um, and not just actors, but, but with so many people on the, on the crew and, um, uh, and, and some actors too. I mean, I, I see, uh, I see a handful of the next gen actors every year at a, uh, at a great uh, 4th of July party that Rick Berman throws. And so it's always great to catch up with those guys, but um but it, but that, you know, being my very first TV show that I ever worked on, and that was pretty magical too. It's somewhere somewhere in between those two, because we're because working on because working on uh, on remastered was like, I mean, you know, it, it would be like 
somebody walking me into a room and introducing me to Superman. I mean, it's, you, you know, it's, it's that <laughs> thing where you're, and they say, here, you can do what you want with this. And, and, uh, you know, and so we got to what we felt, you know, we got to fix some of the problems we felt existed. We got to enhance some of the things that were uh, already great, but, but could use a veneer. And I mean, it was just, it was wonderful. I love it. Love it. So what were the difficulties and benefits of working on a prequel to all the other Star Trek series? And uh, were there any continuity conflicts? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> yes, it's it's tough to do a show like that because you want the freedom to tell stories, but you're always threatened to step on the toes of what came before. Um, you know, it's funny. I... <laughs> I was just having a conversation today on Twitter about Discovery, and they just announced that they've announced who's going to play Captain Pike. And so that immediately got into a question of, well, wait a minute. They're meeting Captain Pike. Uh, It's 10 years before Enterprise, but then they jumped ahead a year in the show, so like eight to nine years. But then didn't Spock say in an episode that the cage takes place 13 years ago from the time of the I mean it was like this this conversation <laughs> this continuity conversation and it's it it can be such a tangled web and um and especially for shows that have this kind of following um where where people know this stuff inside and out and it and it's important to them you know you, there are people who will you know take the side of of well you know being canon or continuity is ridiculous as you move down the road you just have to kind of let it slide and let it and there are others who are feel very strongly that that the that's the the thread that kind of makes it a complete universe for them so um there's there's no right or wrong answer it just depends on what seat you're sitting in you know so yes uh and and were there continuity problems um yes and now i don't I don't remember, I couldn't give you super specific continuity issues that happened, but, um, but I can tell you that when we did, I know a lot of people enjoy the fourth season. That's their favorite season because it, it touches on a lot of things that fans kind of already knew through exposure to other episodes. Um, you know, uh, where did the Klingon heads go and what, you know, things like that. But, but, you know, I, I, I remember there was an episode that came out that uh, when the script came out, it talked about how we meet the Organians. And it was, uh, the script was much different than what, what finally came out. But I remember walking into Rick's office with a head of steam, you know, <laughs> and saying, you know, this is a whole, this is an episode of Star Trek, the original series. These characters appear and, and it's supposedly the first time we meet them and we're not supposed to meet them for another, you know, and I start telling him the story and he's like, Whoa, Whoa, Dave, calm, <laughs> calm it down there, tiger. Um, and so he, he, uh, I remember he, uh, you know, spoke to Manny about it and, 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 and I, I'm sure it was going to change anyway, but, but there are those kinds of things where you would, you know, I, I, I would see certain things and, and, uh, and bring them to his attention. Um, that's the one that I remember being the most kind of like, hey, wait a minute now. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it happened from time to time. And, and um, I don't, do you being 
uh, you know, followers of the show. Were there, were there any glaring continuity issues that jump out to you? There's, I'm sure there's a few in there. I mean, we kind of, we kind of retcon things in our head and whatnot. And I, I actually want to mention the fact that you mentioned this episode. The episode's called Observer Effect, the one that you're talking about. And I have the same reaction that you have to that episode, except for that's my favorite episode of the fourth season. <laughs> you know, and, and whenever I go into it, the episode, like I start watching the episode and I'm like, ah, oh, why did they do this episode? Like, did we need this in the fourth season? Why do, and then I watch it. I'm like, this episode is so damn good. You know, and I just, I just go with it and I just love it by the end of the episode. That's, that's my favorite episode of the fourth season. I love it. Hands yeah, down and, because it's, it's so creepy and cool, you know? And it changed quite a bit. <laughs> Uh, it, it changed quite a bit from the original, but, um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you, you know, and, and they're going through it now on discovery, right. Where, yeah. you know, um, and I've even, you know, I, I've come down on both sides of it online talking to people and, and, um, you know, you look at, there are the things you love and there are the things that you don't care about. And if you don't care about them, um, it's okay to say, yeah, whatever. Let them do what they want. But to somebody else, that's like, you know, punching them in the face, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's an assault. So, uh, so it's interesting that they chose uh, that timeline to do. And they're sandwiched in between things now. Yes. It, which is even tougher. But it, what do you think of Star Trek Discovery? Uh, I think that, I think the first season was a little muddled. Um, from a storytelling point of view, I, I think they, I think they had a direction, and then I know that uh, the executive producer left the show. Um, but after having, I don't know what, two or three scripts already done, and that's hard, you know that's hard to pick up because now you're you, because of the nature of of the show, the way it's being told as uh, as a serialized show you've now got to pick up that thread and kind of run with it and do what you can with it. So I, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a lot to like, it's a beautiful show. It's the acting is unbelievable. I, you know, I don't know that I would have made the choices they made. I, I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't think going into the mirror universe was the greatest choice for a first season. Um, you know, I barely know the discovery crew, let alone now throwing me into the mirror universe to, to do it. And, and I, I felt that, um, you know, some of the choices they made with Starfleet, I, you know, when, when you're at war with the Klingons and twice you have to go to different aliens and say, Hey, how'd you deal with the Klingons? It's, it felt like, it felt like Starfleet was a bit inept. Like they couldn't kind of take charge. They're in the middle of this war. And then when the solution is, you know, the evil mirror emperor comes back and says, well, I think we should just kill them all. And everyone goes, yeah, okay, <laughs> we'll <let's> try that. <laughs> That, that seemed a little. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sounds good to me. We're not Starfleet or exactly. You know, it, it, so I, you know, I think they were kind of rushing to the finish line. But I am excited for season two, and I, I, you know, they've got a kind of a clear slate now, and they can they can start it and end it as they see fit. And it, it look, it's not like season ones of other shows have all been fantastic. So, um. You know, give them their due because the certainly the acting is great, the production value is great. Um, I'm looking forward to see what they can do on season two. 
So what was your favorite episode of uh, Enterprise? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, I like the first season episodes the best, frankly. I love the episode where we're still learning about our technology. I love the episode where they're on a planet and they have to beam the guy up in the middle of a storm. And when he gets up, he's like got sticks and leaves sticking out of his body. Uh, because it's a the, strange new world. Yeah, because the transporter can't, you know, distinguish between those things. Um, I, I, part of the part of the joy of that series for me, and I, I remember having conversations with Rick and Brandon about it, was, you know, the phaser becomes the weapon of the Federation that they use for the next two, three hundred years. Let's see why that is. You know what I mean? When you when you introduce the phaser let's make it cool when you introduce deflector shields let's you know let's see that i i I had a real kind of uh fondness for them telling stories or wanting them to tell stories about how these technologies came about i thought that was fun and and also and certainly the the um foundation of the federation and, and all of that stuff but um but yeah i think the first season was was the most fun for me. I know Fantastic. that's kind of anathema to what most people say. I think most people most people go for the fourth season. You know? Well, there's, there's some really great stuff in the first yeah. season. Like, the episode that they got um, Dean Stockwell on, like, detained, right. like, that's that's one of the best of the series for sure. Right. You know, like, and it's still still valid today. You know, it's, it's almost more important today than it was then. And... Um, you know the uh, the one with uh, Clancy Brown, Desert Crossing, is really good yep. just because Clancy Brown is so amazing. You know, but there's there's a lot of great stuff in season one. And we were talking ahead uh, ahead of the show before we hit record, and you had mentioned that you've had some interaction with people, and they say that they think that Enterprise has aged like a fine wine, and it's you know it's become better with age. That's true. I, I, uh, I would say the majority, if not all of the people who, who bring up enterprise to me, or if that comes into the conversation in some way, they'll say something along the lines of, yeah, you know, I just caught a couple episodes of that and it was really good. It was a lot better than I remembered. And, uh, I don't know where that comes from, but it's, I, I think it's an interesting observation. Yeah. We, we were, we think it's because of like the, the franchise fatigue. Like, there's just so much Star Trek for so long, you know, that, and that people were maybe getting like tired of how much Star Trek there was. And so they weren't giving it a fair chance during it, its, its initial run. Yeah. And so they're just starting um, to discover it. Thing. Exactly. Now they're just yeah. starting to discover it again, which is kind of cool. And which is the same for all Star Trek, which is, which is great. I think any new show that, that, uh, that comes on and, and kind of entices people to see what came before it is great. Great for the franchise. Fabulous. So are there any other stories from your work on Enterprise that we haven't asked about that you want to tell us about? No, I, I know that sounds really boring, but Enterprise was, as we got to the, to the end of the third season, we started seeing the cracks and we started seeing that UPN was maybe going to pull the plug uh, and then we got one more season out of it, the fourth season. And and we had a great turnout at the studio at one point where a lot of fans showed up to say, you know, renew it, renew it, renew it. And, and people with billboards. And I mean, it was like, you know, the old letter writing days. It was really fun and really engaging and, and great to see fans out there who were passionate and decided to, to come out and, and show their love for the show. And so, 
it was interesting in that way because we didn't have that on the other shows. I mean, certainly, look, when I was on Next Generation, you couldn't go anywhere without somebody either being a Star Trek fan or knowing a Star Trek fan who wanted to talk to you about the show. But that's different than the show kind of fighting for its survival and people kind of jumping on board. That, that was a that was a really unique experience and unique to Enterprise. Do you remember what episode you guys were working on when you found out that the show was going to be canceled in season four? Boy, I don't. You'd think okay, you'd, yeah. you'd think that would stick with me, but but well, I that's, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, and um, I you know it. It really was like walking around and, hey, man, I had been on the show for 14 years. And, you know, these departments had started wrapping all their stuff and, and you started saying goodbye to people. And it really didn't hit me that it was over until I went into what had previously been our wardrobe department, which was this, I mean, huge cavernous space filled with wardrobe like three and four costumes high to the ceiling on these giant racks and it was completely empty and I walked in there and there was no one there and it was completely empty and I just remember I started crying I was like that's where it hit me like oh my god this is over and um, and it was a really sad moment because I loved everyone I worked with and certainly working on Star Trek was you know for never being part of the plan was was uh, just a dream come true. So, uh, but yeah, that's uh, I remember that's where it really hit me, seeing this this once kind of vibrant, crazy space full of people and things just emptied was really kind of gutting. Well, yeah, you put fourteen years into it, hey? Yeah, to the day. I started on May thirteenth and ended on May thirteenth. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, let's let's veer off into another territory here because I want to know when your love for Superman began. I want to know your opinions on how they've taken the direction of the character with the DC Cinematic Universe, and I really want to know have you watched Krypton and if so what are your thoughts? All right. Let's see. Um <laughs> three-part question. <laughs> When was I introduced to the character? Well, I think, you know, I, as a kid, I watched a lot of cartoons and, you know, Saturday morning was, uh, take an entire box of some sugar sweetened cereal, pour it into a giant salad bowl and eat it while watching three hours of cartoons and then, you know, go out and play with your friends. Um, uh, so I still do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I wish I still did that. I wish. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so that was my introduction to Superman because I would see the, uh, uh, the super friends was on the weekends. Uh, and then during the week, it was the, uh, filmation adventures of Superman, uh, with, um, Bud Collier doing the voice who also did the radio shows. And he had that, he had that really deep, deep voice that will always kind of weirdly be Superman to me. So I, I had, I had an introduction to the character and I knew who all these characters were. Um, but I was, uh, when I was, uh, I guess eight, nine years old, I was very ill and I missed most of third grade and I was 
home and, and trying, my parents were trying to get me, you know, uh, tutoring and homeschooling because I couldn't go to school. And my father, who I was the youngest of five children, and I am the youngest of five children. And um, my dad, um, he was a World War II vet and he, you know, was a boxer in his youth and a baseball player. And, you know, I was D&D and Star Trek. And and so we didn't have a, a very uh, close relationship. We didn't get each other um, until I was much older. And, uh, but one day he came home and brought with him i don't know if you remember what the treasury edition comics were they were these giant oversized comic books uh i'll send you a picture of one you can see what i'm talking about but um i'm old enough to know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah and so not... yeah he and they were they were called treasury editions and and it was basically uh the size of like the old life magazine you know these big you know, look magazine these big giant magazines and uh and my dad brought me home a stack of of these he had found somewhere and i was sick in my room and he came in and he brought them to me and one was superman it was superman one was shazam and one was um tarzan and uh and that was kind of the first time my dad had had taken a, a moment to kind of consider that i like these things and that they were important to me and he, he found these somewhere, wherever he was on his travels, and picked them up and, and brought it to me. And uh, that Superman comic, I still have to today. And uh, that, I, because it was a gift from my dad, but also just that was the first comic book I had read. Um, and that really launched me into the character. And so from that time on, I was a huge Superman fan, but I never collected the comics. I only collected uh, Marvel comics as a kid, and didn't I didn't collect Superman comics again until uh, back in the early '90s. We had the the uh, riots out here in California, and <clears throat> I was living with a roommate at the time, and they incurred a uh, they instigated a curfew. So when the streetlights come on, you had to be in your house or you got arrested. And so my roommate at the time, who we're still friends today, but at the time he said, you know, if they make us stay in the house to get in the apartment together, we're going to kill each other. We should go buy a board game or something. And so as we were on our way to, to buy a couple of board games, he said to me, did you ever collect comics when you were a kid? And I said, yeah. And he said, you want to go to a comic store and buy a bunch of old comics? And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> and so I uh, walked into this comic store. It was just, they were just building up to the death of Superman. And so I picked up a couple of comics and one was a Batman comic and it was very, uh, very dark and, and uh, adult. And I went to the, the owner of the comic shop and I said, well, you know, when I was a kid, it was, you know, Spider-Man was fighting Electro and, you know, <laughs> the Sandman. And this is Vulture. like, you know, yeah, you know, but this is, you know, Batman going against the drug ring. And, you know, I was like, are kids reading these today? And so he pointed out that there's, you know, some of the, of course, all these kids who had grown up reading Batman comics or whatever they were, now they're writing them. And so... He said, so this, the, the storytelling has evolved and, and uh, you know, there are still books for kids and there are still, and now, but now there are books for adults as well. 
that skew a little more adult. And, uh, and so I grabbed a bunch of them and, and uh, it was again, building up to the death of Superman a couple of issues before that happened. And so I jumped on board and I've been collecting now ever since. And I am a, uh, I collect typically both Marvel and DC, but over the last, excuse me, over the last um, year and a half or so, maybe close to two years, my Marvel consumption has uh, gone down to almost nothing. And, uh, um, and DC comics uh, can do no wrong. Uh, they, they recently did their rebirth. I don't know if you're aware of it, but they, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, they did, they launched and re- kind of not really relaunched them, but, but relaunched them with, um, with the directive to creators to really get into the characters' heads and make them who they used to be. Because even DC, when they were doing their new 52 and whatnot, there, there was, there, there was points where the characters were all kind of interchangeable and they all had the same voice. And, and so they really went on a push to, to kind of recreate these characters, um, and make them the way they used to be. And, and, uh, and give them their own voices. And it's been a stellar success as far as I'm concerned. I, I'm, I look forward to every Wednesday now to go get my comics. I just think they're, they're doing a great job. Um, as for the DC cinematic universe, well, my favorite movie involving Superman of that whole run of movies from man of steel to justice league is the third trailer to the Superman movie. <laughs> we That's are my on the favorite same Man line. of Steel movie. <laughs> um, I uh, I got time to watch that. I'm going to go watch that. Yeah, it's a it's type in Man of Steel trailer number three, and uh, that's my favorite Man of Steel movie right now. I look, there's a lot that I liked about the first Man of Steel movie. There were a couple things. And I understood they took like they were taking chances, and but there were a couple of things that just didn't, it just didn't hit it for me. And and you know, I want to be able to take. And back then he was even younger; he's nine now. But I wanted to take my son to enjoy a Superman movie, and I I didn't feel I could take him to to that movie and, and have him enjoy it. And um, I think a lot of it might have scared him. As hokey as the Chris Reeve Superman first movie can be at times you still walk out of that movie feeling joyful. You feel hopeful. You feel jazzed. You're smiling when he smiles at the camera. I mean, it's, it's, that's what a Superman movie should convey in my opinion. And so I, I don't think that they're doing, you know, he obviously Zack Snyder went for this other thing, which is what if superheroes really existed? What would it be like? What would it be like for them? What would it be like for us? And, and I don't know, to me, while that's an interesting comic book thing to explore, I don't want to take 10 years to get through a series of movies about it so that he can eventually become Superman the way I like him. That's kind of my take on it. Um, I think they hit it out of the park with Wonder Woman. I love that movie. Um, Justice League. It was great seeing those characters on the screen, and there are some certainly some moments that I just love the hell out of. But it's a sloppy movie, I think. I think it's it, it just they they made uh, mistakes with demanding first that its running time be locked, 
before they even did anything. Certainly bringing in both directors is uh, that you can obviously tell. Um, but even things like, you know, I know there are a lot of people who love Man of Steel and, and I, I like, again, I like a lot of it, but, but um, we're at an, I think we're at an interesting point in our culture now where whether or not something is a good movie is one part of the equation. But another part is, is it a good Superman movie is another part of the equation. And I think people don't look at those two things. I think they put that all together. And if it's, for instance, if it's not the Superman they want, then it's a horrible movie. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. It, it might not be a good Superman movie, but it can be a good movie. You know what I mean? Um, I think you can get the same thing of Star Trek or James Bond or anything. You know, Whether or not it's a good movie is one thing. Whether or not it's a good Star Trek movie is another thing. And, but I think that line gets blurred a lot. So, um, and, and Batman versus Superman, uh, you know, I've read the dark Knight. I, I get it. You know, Batman's got to win. So there's nothing new in that movie for me. Yeah. The only thing that was, yeah, just the casting was weird for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I think, I think that, um, what they did with Henry Cavill in justice league is at least let the Superman I like peek out. And so I hope they continue with that. I agree wholeheartedly. No, I was just going to say, what about Krypton? Have you watched Krypton? I want to know. I want to know. Uh, I have, I've watched, uh, I'm an episode behind. I haven't watched the third episode yet. Okay. Uh, um. but yeah, it's, it, <clears throat> it's fun. It's a new take. It's refreshing. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of Adam strange, the way they portray him, but yeah, um, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't get that choice, but, um, but I like the, how they're setting up the different houses. And I like that there's kind of this, um, I don't know, kind of slum side of Krypton and it's not the spotless sparkling planet. You, you know, advanced population you always think of. Uh, I think those are fun choices. So I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes. As am I. And so is my 80-year-old mother. She loves it. Really? <laughs> yep. She She's a nerd, and she birthed the three nerds, and I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing where they go with it. Fantastic. So um, what are you working on now that you can let the listeners in on? Well, I, uh, I work now for a division of Paramount that, um, that licenses out the Paramount name and its properties to uh, firms that are trying to build theme parks overseas that want to brand their parks with Western intellectual properties. And so there's nothing built yet, but we're working on a lot of stuff. And a lot of times I get to kind of dip my, my toes back in the Star Trek pool because, um, because that's, the movie Paramount works on, and we have a great relationship with CBS. And CBS doesn't currently have a themed entertainment division, so we do a lot of cross work with them, um, which is a lot of fun. So I get to I get to play with Star Trek every now and then, but but there's nothing uh, <clears throat> nothing on the radar yet that I can talk about. So, real quick, I have to ask now that we we touched on that because I didn't know that's what you were currently doing. Um, there's lots of rumors flying around that there will be a Starfleet in Florida at some point. Is there anything that you can say about that? I have not heard about anything in Florida. 
Okay. <laughs> but Ohio, he knows all about Ohio. <laughs> but that's not to say that's not to say that something's not not uh, on the horizon, or or it's possible we just haven't been contacted yet. It's possible right, that some, right. no, it's just a lot. Yeah, of it's possible it's something CBS is dealing with and not us. Yeah, Universal just bought up a huge tract of land, and uh, they're supposed to be building a Nintendo themed, and and the rumor is Star Trek themed next no. to it. So, no. um, I don't know. That would have been interesting. Um, I, I imagine that you do a lot of work in China right now if you're doing overseas, right? Because they're building a ton. Well, that's of true. Out there. It is. We're we talk a lot with the Chinese. Yeah, I can imagine. I saw a map, and it's like they're dotting their whole coastline with, with theme parks. Yeah, it's the place to be. If you're if you're interested in this line of work, that's the place you got to be. Well, uh, last question I have for you, before you tell the listeners where they can find you online and social media, what's your favorite underrated Superman comic that you've read? Underrated? What do you think is like, like, I love the alternative factor, and I, and I will scream from the tops of the hills that Alternative Factor is my number two favorite Star Trek episode. I I <laughs> love the Alternative Factor. Yes! I, I, I think that... Now, Validation <clears throat> at last. You know what? I think that um, that's a really high-concept show. And people say, oh, yeah, but it was carried out really poorly. And it was... You know what? It's a, it, that's a heavy show, man. And I think it's great. I love watching that episode. Right on. You're my new best friend. <laughs> I mean, if you think about if you Fire think about him. what Lazarus II sacrifices. Yes. I mean, for all eternity, he's going to be there with Cuckoo Lazarus Number One, preventing reality from being destroyed. That's that's pretty intense. Wow. I love it. <laughs> so is there any Superman comics that you love that you just don't think get enough attention? I guess that's the any issue that you that you like to read, that you like to go back to, that you don't think gets enough attention. Um, I, one of my favorite all-time Superman stories is um, something called uh, What's So Funny About Truth and Justice. And um, <clears throat> not to take up too much time, but, but back in the, in the 90s, Comics kind of took this turn where um, people wanted their heroes to be um, vigilantes in the sense that they exacted justice with a pound of flesh. Everyone kind of went that route. They, you know, certainly Wolverine was on every comic and he was very vicious. Batman became, um, you know, they put... um, Azrael in his place and he was very vicious and um and then they created this group called the authority um that you know was this this comic about these superheroes who you know it wasn't about supervillains really per se it was more about well this guy is the head of a foreign state and we don't like what he's doing so we're gonna murder him and, you know, every four issue kind of arc was, was the same, you know, the, the, this, some villain shows up and does something really, really horrific in the world. And then the authority confront him and get their asses kicked. 
and then they regroup in issue three, and then in issue four, they murder him in the most <clears throat> over-the-top heinous way you could ever imagine, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was, and people were eating it up. People loved that, that kind of reaction, and, and so a guy named Joe Kelly did an issue of Batman. It's Action Comics 775, I think, and uh, he introduces this group called the Elite, which is really a ripoff of the authority and it's what happens when superman who is you know someone who uses his power to help and believes in good and truth and justice and and what happens when he runs into a group that does that and it's all about that interaction and and it's really good it's a really good issue so i would i would say if you have not read Action Comics 775, it's called What's So Funny About Truth and Justice. Um, it really is. Good. In fact, I think they made an animated movie about it called uh, Superman versus the Elite. And they touch and they touch on a lot of what happens in the in the comic. But I would read the comic first. It's really good. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with us. Where can the listeners find you online? When, on, anywhere on social media? I'm uh, on Twitter. And um, my handle looks like it means hope, but the I in it is actually a small L. So it's more like lieutenant means hope. Well, talking with Dave Rossi is not the only thing we've been discussing here on the network this week. So take a listen to this clip and see what else you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. She is going to be one of the greatest comedic stars of this century. She is going to be amazing. And I love her. She's hilarious. But Tilly has become solely comedic relief in this episode. And Tilly is not just comedic relief. She is smart. Tilly is a smart person. She right. knows her job. She is going to be one of the greatest captains in Starfleet. I believe that. Warp 5. Wait, hold on. You don't... You don't have a, uh, a a reflection. There's beams of light traversing the ship, cutting you. Mm -hmm. And my lack of logic is what's astounding here? Yeah, because you made an assumption based on zero evidence. Except for the fact that they just melted. Yeah, the three we that we've seen, we don't fact know that what the rest of them are doing. This is we the first one we've seen. don't know if it was anymore. Okay, let's scan the melting. Earl Grey. But yes, I was a huge Star Trek fan. Never in my life ever imagined that I would ever appear or meet uh, some of those fabulous people on that show. Never thought, and, and meet Gene Roddenberry. I never thought I would ever meet Most of my life, I never thought would happen. So uh, I feel very, very fortunate. The 602 Club. And it really speaks to, to me, Halliday's ego even. Of I'm going to make everyone love what I love, and then that's how they'll win the contest, you know. And and it's sad that it feels like it all became that. What you're saying, Matt, of it, everyone not even having um, the creativity to have their own stuff anymore. It's all about what Halliday was interested in. Um, and and then I think too, it really also could be even a commentary about greed in society now that everything really revolved around wanting to get his and you know his fortune so they did all the research they had to do because they just wanted the money 
And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and up, up, and away! You'll find us wherever you can get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, Superman said up, up, and away, didn't yeah. he? I don't know. I'm pretty that, sure that he did. Or was that Toy no, Story? That's a different thing altogether, for heaven's sake. It was up, up, and away D- back in the olden days. Okay. Okay, good. At least I know what I'm talking about. I don't, I don't watch Superman. I don't read Superman. I don't know. I went, I, so I don't really know. That's why I was asking. I wanted to find a comic I can read, right? That's why I asked You're that so question. You're so smart. You're so smart. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. But don't send us any kryptonite. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and... You can stream and download the MP3 from our website or grab the RSS link as well. And it's also available at the Daily Planet. <laughs> that metropolis, they're an up-and-coming city to watch. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. And there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us email... You can use the form on our website at trek.fm trek slash contact. Choose to send a show and select Warp 5. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So, Brandon, when you're not making new best friends over the love of a single show, where can listeners find you? Alternative Factor! <laughs> is awesome. I feel so vindicated, you know. I might watch it tonight. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella. Uh, you can find me on Facebook every once in a while on the Babel Conference. You can find me here on the network with new episodes of The Edge. And you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with my friends Chris and Tom where we talk about Alfred Hitchcock in our show Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. And there may be something near and dear to my heart on the horizon, so be sure to watch my feeds for what that could possibly be. And Patrick... Where can people find you when you're not uh, trying to super computer generate old episodes of Star Trek and make them look really good? So, nowhere, because that takes so much time <laughs> that I just don't have time to do anything else. But if I were to have time, it would be on Twitter at MagicDrop5. That is one word with the number five being an actual number. And I pop up in the Babel Conference. Not quite as busy as the rest of you guys yet. That may or may not be changing in the near future with a couple things popping up, but check out my Twitter and you can find out what's going on. And uh, and that's about it. Randy, where can people find you when you're not fawning over comic books with Dave Rossi? That's all I want to do now. (laughs) It's just that forever. Uh, You can find me in the Babel Conference lurking, although not as much as usual because my life got really busy uh, recently. And you can, of course, hear me on the strangeanddeadly.com podcast, the Dark Corner podcast with my husband, Dave. There are colorful metaphors there. Colorful, I can say words. Colorful metaphors. And so, not for children. Uh, I pop up on the 602 Club now and again these days as well because I have so many loves. I can't just talk about one of them anymore i guess <laughs> and uh you'll see me on twitter at brandywine12 brandy is with an i 12 is a number 
And uh, yeah, that I think about covers everything. If you'd like to help us keep all of these wonderful shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. And if you don't know how to spell Patreon, here's how you spell it. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. We have perks for you. Perks. Everybody loves perks. Early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and so many other things that you don't even know about yet. And it's all available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. I didn't do it dramatically this time. It requires a huge amount of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. And we appreciate any support you can give us, and we really hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. At this time, we would like to thank the wonderful associate producers who are all men and women of steel. Yes. Who support Trek FM, who support Warp 5. And uh, they are the wonderful Norman C. Lau, Floyd Dorsey, Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, Justin Ozer, Mark Flessa, and Joe Saltzman. You know what? All of them mean hope. This is true. You got me right here. Right here in my feels. Well, I guess that's all we got for you, so keep calm and boom on. Keep calm and boom on. Awesome, Dave. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It was a blast. Ah, thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. I, I, I uh, love talking about this stuff, as you can tell. Excellent. Right on. Right on. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's great to get a little bit more behind-the-scenes information of, uh, of Enterprise, so we love it. On a great. personal note, well, I wish I could just talk to you for another hour about comic books. Um <laughs> I'm on Twitter anytime. <laughs> oh, you're you're gonna get it now. I'm gonna follow you so hard. <laughs> I, my uh, my big venture into comics was the onslaught arc in Marvel. Oh wow, yeah, really cool. That's that's where it started. I was in junior high school. Yeah, then. well, I was. We did a, a crossover comic of uh, Next Gen meets X Men. Oh. Yes. 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 Really, you, you worked on that. Oh, I gotta get it. Yeah. Too. Yeah, I get it. Excellent. I think I have it somewhere. Yeah, it's good. I have the book that uh, I think it was Michael Jan Friedman. Was that an adaptation of the comics, or was that something different? Oh, I don't know. It might because there's a novel. Um, might have been. I think. I think it was a. Con- I have both of them. I do think they were tied together. Okay, yeah. Planet X is the name of the book that yes. Michael Jan Friedman wrote. Because it, it was all about Professor X, but being in Star Trek land, which is interesting because, you know, he ended up being the same. Yeah, person. right. <laughs> so, and I don't think he was when that book came out. I think that book predates the X-Men movie. Yes, it does. So, yeah, it does. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. Right on. All right. Well, thanks, guys. 
thank you so much. We thank appreciate you. you. Anytime. Have a great night. Yes, great talking you to you. Much for your time. <laughs> great talking you to you. Too. Thank Bye -bye. you. And good luck to your Bye -bye. son. Bye.